Exploring the healing and culture building practices of embodied anti-racism. This is With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning, or good evening, depending on where you are while you're listening. I am Reverend Kelly Isola, and I'm here with my partner in crime and consciousness, Reverend Ogan Holder. Welcome to With Love and Justice for All, where we have conversations around embodied anti-racism, dismantling oppression, um, and the intersections of life and um, dismantling racism, um, especially the, the challenges that often arise as spiritual seekers and within spiritual communities. So if you would like to join the conversation, you can call in to 816-251-3555, or you can message us on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, and our, uh, why do I always blank on this word, Ogan? I don't know. Which word, which word are you going uh, At, get our holy on. Uh, our, our, uh, our handle? Handle! Our oh my gosh! So I need to write it in there because every week I forget the word handle. So get our at, get our holy on, because that's what we are committed to. Or a handle on your handle there. That's right. Getting a handle on my handle. So what you just, the other voice you just heard is our guest today. We have a very special guest, Sylvia Hayes. Um, Our topic today is uh, sacred economics, not just economics, but economics. Um, Our current economic model, which is built on the economics of slavery, uh, for those that did not realize that or know that, uh, it's built on on, um, the slave trade, on materialism, on consumption and production and limitless growth, which has been wreaking havoc on nature for centuries, really, and keeping millions of people trapped in poverty, um, in dead-end jobs, and really just unsatisfying and oftentimes not a lot of meaning in life because you're just working for the paycheck. Um, the new economy movement that uh, Sylvia is going to talk to us about is it's robust. It's gaining momentum um, as more and more people, uh, entrepreneurs, businesses, organizations. There's just, uh, and I think, and Sylvia will correct me um, in a few minutes if this is wrong, that especially during COVID, it's, there's, there's been elements of really ramping up of saying enough is enough. And, and getting busy creating healthier ways of making a living, healthier ways of doing business, um, all of which are um, elements of creating an anti-racist culture. Um, you know, when we focus on that, it's not a zero-sum game that my good is also your good and, and vice versa. So in this episode, Sylvia Hayes, who is a teacher, a speaker, an author, and a strategist in economic evolution, is going to talk to us about some of the current norms in our economic system that need to be changed. Um, and and I'm pretty sure we won't get to all of them, but maybe a few biggies. And we're going to learn about some exciting alternatives, about ways to, to do things differently. Sylvia will share ideas that everyone can take action on, including where and how, where you can bank, where you can invest, where you eat, where you travel, where you spend your money. And, you know, you've heard Reverend Ogan and I um, say a lot of times offer places to do business with um uh, at where it's a you know a person of color owns the business um, rather than just into the giant you know pool of conglomerates. Um, so she's going to share some of the some ways that we can take action um, that really help heal our world. So welcome, Sylvia. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, we met um, just recently this past fall. We were at a conference together and. Reverend Ogan and I were um, talking about embodied anti-racism. Yeah, I was really impressed with your guys' work. And then I learned that you had this show and um, that's where, that's how this all happened. And it only takes someone, you know, you get an email, hey, I'd like to come on your show. And we're like, okay. (laughs) Um, Maybe not to everybody, but. I was going to say, we just don't say, okay. I know. There is there is a slight bit of a screening process. I was feeling like. special for a moment. Like, yes, you know, yes, yes. Well, you it, are. You I are. just didn't get. I didn't want to give the rest of the world the wrong idea. Like you well, know, you're you're bringing a topic that is a 
that is in alignment with with what we do and who we are and and what we envision for the world so it was it was a it was a great it was a great match yeah. we can't say that that's going to happen with everyone so i you know better 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 to better to establish the boundaries right 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 at the get-go <laughs> well i also think it's really good timing um it, because we just, you know, it was just it wasn't just a couple months ago we finished up uh, the book "The Sum of Us" by Heather yes. McGee, which is all about, um, not all, but large, largely about economics and racism, and uh, and and how, and it's called "The Sum of Us" because she maintains that this is not a zero sum game, mm-hmm. that racism impacts everybody in different ways. Let's keep that in mind. Um, and yet it's, you know, um, investing in somebody, anybody's good is the good for all. So I want to start actually, so there was two things in, in the, you know, when we were, um, when you gave me the, what, what you were going to talk about today. And there's two phrases in there that I think most people may not be familiar with. One is the new economy, which is capital N, capital E, right? So the new economy movement. So I, I guess, Maybe start with that one or the sacred economics, because I know there's the work of Charles Eisenstein that is sacred economics, which I've been engaged with for a long time. It's how I run my business. Um, And I but I also know there's a lot of people that aren't familiar with it. So I, I would love for you to unpack those two things to start with. Well, the new economy movement, it's actually um sort of like various races. It's not homogenous, right? Not everyone would even call it the new economy movement. I I do as an umbrella, but there's a, there's a meaningful economy movement. That's a piece of it. There's the solidarity economy. That's a piece of it. Um, But what it basically is, is it's a growing body of people and organizations and businesses, and even some government movement around the world that's recognizing that the current economic system that we're in is fundamentally flawed. It's fundamentally unsustainable. I'll talk more more about this um, for nature, for our our own planetary living, you know, life support systems. And it also does have the embedded the embedded racism and the embedded classism. So um, a new economy movement has been going on even before millennials were, (laughs) but um, it's really, it's really gaining traction. You know, another aspect of it are you, you touched on it in the intro, um, the movement away from banks to credit unions. That's an action that really counts. It keeps things more local, right? A lot of the banks are invested in things that are not great for people or our planet. Um, that whole that whole movement, the sharing economy, the gift economy, which is what Charles Eisenstein Eisenstein really speaks to. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the new economy movement. It's those of us who are still, you know, the challenge for so many of the issues that we're dealing with in th- this wild time of upheaval and hopefully evolution is where we all have to exist and function in the very paradigm that we're trying to shift. So that's got to be acknowledged too. And I'll come back to it, but what's happening with Russia and Ukraine right now is such a classic example of that. Sacred economics, where I go to there, Charles Eisenstein uh, did write a book, Sacred Economics, and I highly recommend it. Um, I like to emphasize the eco because I don't think most people do. Mm. And when you're talking about oppression, dismantling oppression, my life's work has really been trying to dismantle the oppression of nature and of non-human nature and non-human species. And I will say one of the things um, that is most exciting about the new economy movement in the U.S., the whole sustainability movement, what have you, in the U.S. has been behind Europe and some other places in really integrating environmental issues and environmental justice and social issues and justice. So the new economy movement does that better than most other aspects of the environmental movement in the U.S. So say say a little bit more about that when you say it does a better job. Like, can you give me an example? Yeah. So, you know, some of the organizations that I would put under that umbrella 
are things like the New Economy Coalition, which is a hub of a whole bunch of organizations. And they are very intentional with leadership um, of and by diversity, people of color, that sort of thing. It, 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 it rather, the, it's more of an approach that yes, we need to protect nature and we need to do it in a way that also protects underserved mm-hmm. and marginalized human populations. And, you know, traditionally, a lot of the uh, a lot of the classic environmental movement has been a lot of white people, relatively well off white people who have been a little blind to that side of it. That's really shifting. Um, And I think that that's an exciting, positive move, because when we're talking about transitioning the entire global economy, we need a lot of we we need a lot of good thinking and a lot of momentum there, right? That's a this is a tricky this is a tricky issue to have be your life calling because <laughs> I feel like the, I feel like the Cassandra, you know, this and climate change are what I've hung my professional hat on for the most part, and those are both so big. Um, and so the point that I always like to start with is I think when even when you do polling of Westerners of what you know what do you what do you think about the economy? The things that come back are like, oh, it's a it's a force of nature or an act of God or whatever. And it's really important to note it's a set of human made systems. The economy is a construct. We created it and we shape it and direct it all the time. Um, It's more like a garden, you know, than a machine We're we're pruning it and shaping it all the time with policies, good and bad. Uh, tax policy, good and bad, subsidies, the things we incentivize, good and bad. Um, so it, it it is not beyond our control to have a fundamental transition of this system that is so front and center in everybody's lives. Well, I think it's the, um, um, you know, we're, we're just, we're so comfortable in our whiteness uh, that to you know, you're asking people to give something up. We really are. Um, and people are just comfortable. Are um, you saying we're asking them to give something up by looking at the at the racial justice issue or the economic issue or? Well, it's the same. It's the same thing. It's uh, because because our economic system is built on is came was born out of slave trade. Um, you can't unhook the two, but any time that we're talking about, for me, when we're talking about dismantling a system, right, and a structure, um, it people get there's there's discomfort. And, yeah, it requires change, and that sort of change will require people to give up the things that they've grown accustomed to and and yeah. and, and comfortable with. And and you mentioned, uh, you know, what's going on in the Ukraine earlier, and we begin to see like you know, effects of that tangentially at the gas pump and, and people are, you, you can see the litany of complaints and concerns about that, about the price of gas going up. And what I want to say is um, I think it's a small sacrifice for us to pay a few more cents at the pump. And there's people literally dying in another, yeah. in another country. Right. So what's, what, what often happens with, with, folks in our society is that is that the, the short-sightedness around our comfort makes us soon forget things that are far away right so that conflict is not directly affecting our daily life but the gas price going up is so that's what we're going to be more concerned about so to pay more at the pump for example to to you know save the environment or or to transition to to electric cars to 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 help that whether it costs more or not is is gonna folk folk folks will only do it if for the most part if it saves them money yeah and you know it's an addiction it's an addiction yeah type of behavior we're all addicted to fossil fuel i mean and again even those of us who feel out genuine pain when we fill up our cars we're filling up our cars. We're in a system where yeah. we're all caught in an addicted system. So that's a challenge. That's a big challenge. I would also argue, though, if we were to take a systemic look at this, so can, so just imagine how different things would be in the Russia-Ukraine situation right now 
if we had, if humanity had already made, and we could have, the full scale um, commitment to getting beyond fossil fuel, and if we had not made the insane commitment to nuclear proliferation, there would be no war in Ukraine right now, certainly not over this situation. Um, I've been frustrated with, with President Biden that he has been the one kind of digging his heels into putting to banning Russian oil imports, but he actually came out in favor of that just just uh, yesterday or today. Um, and it's a risk because it is politically dangerous for him because the gas pot prices are going to go up and people are going to just see that and they're going to blame the president. But it, it's much, much bigger than that. And right. the frustration that I have right now, back to this topic, is you know, I can't remember who said it, but I've heard it said that if you ask the wrong questions, the answers don't matter. And what we're hearing all across the media is, oh, my God, where are we going to get more oil to replace the 2% that we get from Russia? And um, now we're dealing with another petro dictator in Venezuela. And really, nobody's really asking the question, how can we reconfigure global resources to help Europe get off Russian gas? That's really doable, even with efficiency measures. And to help redirect our public dollars so that we are getting serious about investing in alternatives, alternatives to fossil fuel. It shouldn't be about opening up additional oil reserves and shifting to other problematic tyrants to get it, to keep the prices low, which is what, which is what the conversation mostly is. And I'm, I'm also, uh, I, I do, I probably shouldn't, but I do on some amazed is probably too strong a word, but I do kind of, you know, do the head tilt where you're like, huh? Like when someone wants to go drilling in the Arctic, like, well, we know there's an oil reserve here or there. I'm like, why? Like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And in in this day and age, how does someone, I mean, I, I guess it's the greed, it's the addiction, it's the money, but how does someone not see connecting the dots that if you do that here's the fallout like the domino so this is what has made me do this on yeah. my whole life honestly um yeah you know i think maybe greed has an addictive factor too i'm yeah. i'm i'm not sure but there's uh, there are other issues to this and this is what i mean about taking control of the economy we are cringing right now at gas at $5 a gallon at the pump. And I've been low income enough, enough of my life that I know that's a big deal. And again, we have enough money in this system that we could actually offer support to people at, you know, more marginal economically if we chose to do that. However, in truth, we are already paying over $10 a gallon for gas at the pump. When you factor in the subsidies to oil and gas industry, the cost of using military to protect ocean going and overseas uh, Mm. fossil Mm. fuel resources. And I am not even factoring in the cost of catastrophic wildfire, flood, the weather events. I'm not factoring any of that in just those things, the subsidies, the military, et cetera. We're paying $10 a gallon but we keep it artificially low at the pump, which sends a perverse signal to everybody. And it keeps the pressure lower to make the full scale commitment to a shift, right? We've created like this, like this continual motion machine of stupidity in how we have designed this particular economy. And, and while I'm on my rant and you can just but in if I get on too many rants. No, oh, please. The other piece of this that I think is so important, you never even hear the mainstream media folks or most mainstream people question the notion of growing the GDP, the gross domestic product. We always hear we got to get the GDP going, right? COVID hits, it's like, oh my God, we've got a 13% drop in GDP. What is so important to note is that the guy who invented the GDP coming out of World War II, Simon Kuznets, he said, don't use this to measure the full progress of your nation. It's not a complete tool. The GDP simply measures the amount of money flowing through the economy. 
It doesn't distinguish if that money is doing good or ill. The GDP measures the amount. Yeah. The GDP measures the the amount of money spent to keep a kid in juvenile jail as just exactly the same as the same amount of money spent to give that kid or a kid an education. The GDP was actually boosted for a time from all the massive effort of trying to clean up the uh, BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Right. So it is a really flawed metric, but come, but it was useful coming out of World War II because it gave us a chance to see where the economy was growing and where it wasn't. And we were able to redirect resources to, to get ahead of that war and kind of rebuild coming out. However, just hanging our hat just on that is a really flawed metric. The other piece of that is we're in a paradigm where no one ever questions can the economy really grow forever indefinitely? Right. And that's what we're in. It's like, we have to have economic growth, economic growth, economic growth. I have a, I have a, a little graphic I could show you that shows um, it tracks GDP growth over, over like 50 years and amount of plastic in the environment and climate change and species loss. And they totally track together. So we need to be asking. And you know what would be, I, I would love to see that at some point because you could also add to it, um, um, it things around healthcare or illness, yeah. um, um, uh, violence um, against marginalized communities. You know, um, uh, right now, you, you, I'm pretty sure you could track it in terms of violence um, uh, against any marginalized community, but LGBTQ, um, you know, 2021 saw more violence against transgender people than ever. Um, and so it would just be interesting to see that map and then track other um, other uh, things that are going, you know, other destructive systems at play. Sure, it would. It would be fascinating. I'm happy to give it to you. And I'm actually going to be using it. Um, I'm going to be showing it at my workshop on this topic at the uh, Women of Wisdom conference coming up that you and I are are, are co-partners in goodness in that in that conference. That's right. So so yeah, so, so to wrap this piece, I know it's kind of geeky and techy, and this is probably why they do say that economics is the dismal science, but I try to I try not to keep it too dismal. Um what are the right questions? The right questions shouldn't be, how do we get the economy growing? The question should be growth of what and for what? Yeah. Right? A dear friend of mine, wonderful human being, um, John DeGraff, wrote a seminal book on this titled, What's the Economy For Anyway? And that's a question we never ask, right? But with when COVID hit, between, and I, I, there's a number of pieces of why I think COVID is was really useful. And I hope that doesn't sound too harsh, but um, uh, when it hit and people were suddenly out of work and then for the first time, the U S kind of experimented with a guaranteed basic income, right. With the, with the um, uh, extended unemployment and unemployment available to gig workers and then the stimulus and whatnot, people for the first time had more of a chance to ask, Hey, has that economy been working for me or have I just been working for it? Right. And to your point in the intro, a, a lot of people are stuck in that latter soul killing yep. relationship to the economy. Which so is I, why we have this great resignation. People are like, wait a minute. What? Exactly. I don't think so. Wait, yep. wait. I yep. think it's super powerful and super, super positive. So do I. Yeah. So I. I also want to say before we shift off the, the COVID piece for anyone who has not seen the documentary, The Year Earth Changed, I cannot recommend it enough. It's just under an hour. I think it's only on Apple TV. It's narrated by David Attenberg and it is stunning. It tracks all across the globe how nature responded when in those first many months when the economy was put into timeout, things like the behavior of humpback whales changed because yes. for the first time in decades, yep. mothers could leave their calves and go hunt together as a group, which is how they're supposed to do it. Because for the first time in decades, they could hear their calves from a distance. Right. There's no more ship, no more noise pollution. 
Yeah. So the question again, you know, this, remember when that huge tanker got stuck sideways in the Suez Canal and all the question was, Oh my God, how do we get it going again? How do we get it unstuck? And I'm, I'm saying the question should be, does it make sense to be shipping stuff all across the planet on ships that are the size of five football fields and that people really can't control? Right. That just by moving around are never mind what they're carrying, but just by moving around are destructive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was um, serving as first lady of Oregon, we went on our, I went with the governor, the first trade mission that I went with uh, over to Asia. um, He had a bunch of, he had been governor before we got together. So he had a bunch of old timers with him on this trip who had been with him in his terms before. And they were all, you know, kind of bragging and patting themselves on the back for they had been the ones who had gotten um, uh, who had opened the way for Oregon grass seed to be imported into China. And I am listening to this. And finally, I said, hey, guys, in a carbon constrained world, does it make sense to be shipping? Shouldn't we just be showing China how to grow grass seed over there? I got to interrupt you there with that question because we have to go to break. But we'll come back and repeat that last question when we come back. You're listening to With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. All right, welcome back. Uh, we are talking with uh, Sylvia Hayes, our guest, uh, special guest today, and we're we're talking about sacred economics, economics, I should say better. Um, and uh, this is this has been a stimulating discussion so far. And I think where we might be getting to with this is maybe correct me if I'm going to sum this up too directly, but us human beings are too greedy for our own good, and we're going to take down the planet with us unless we wake up to a different experience and 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 some of us are not enough of us have but there's always hope question mark yeah (laughs) i'm not even going to put an exclamation mark i'm not even going to declare there was a time i would have declared there's always hope now i gotta admit i'm question marking it so uh so when you when when we left to go to break you were telling us a story about about Mm -hmm. um 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 See, uh, grass seed and and it was a china or japan and 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 you were going to take us in a direction of, of how do we how do we localize these things because you're right uh you know a lot of the 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 internationalization of commerce and these trade deals between countries i think you know as the as the someone who's not an economist but i can see yes they were created to how can we how can we make the most by spending the least and yeah. and yeah. and not caring about the fallout, um, which is ultimately not sustainable? But by God, we're trying. <laughs> we're trying to sustain this model that's gonna hurt us. So so how do we get back to the bringing things home? Yeah, there is a really um, again, it's a growing movement as part of this whole umbrella new economy mo- movement of relocalization. And you even started to see more of that during COVID because the supply chains broke down and people couldn't get it. You know, we were, we were made aware that, oh my God, we don't, or we don't manufacture any of our own uh, certain Mm -hmm. kinds of pharmaceuticals or vitamin C in the U S anymore. It's all been offshore because it's cheaper and, and people will work at slave wages there. Right. I mean, it's a, it is that pursuit of the cheapest everything with no, with a disconnect from what the implications of that are. And more and more, more and more and more people are waking up to this and relocalization is happening. And, you know, the added benefits, when we talk about the new economy requiring a bunch of sacrifice, that's true. It also brings a lot of good well living with it though too it's it's more about building community mm-hmm. i like going into the the stores and restaurants here in my town where i know people we right. talk about there is there there is a increasingly oh i'm just going to put it out there i believe we are in an apocalypse 
And I do not believe that that's terrifying. The root of the word apocalypse means an unveiling or an uncovering what was hidden. And we've been as a species, especially certainly as in the wealthier nations, we've been skimming along thinking that this paradigm we're in is glorious and it's great. And this level of consumption is wonderful. And, and either through genuinely not knowing or through willful ignorance, it, um, not paying attention to the downside costs of it. Well, those downside costs now, whether it is, whether it is people standing up and saying, I'm not going to stand the racial oppression anymore. Whether it's people standing up and saying, I'm not going to work at a shit job for $10 an hour. You know, whether it's people saying, my God, we've got the UN meeting trying to figure out what to do with the plastic stuff in our environment. Right. So those things are can't, they can't, they're not hidden anymore, which is uncomfortable, painful. I mean, grief management is, a big part of the time that we're in. Um, But one of the reasons that I got on the unity ministerial track and I'm part of this whole new thought movement is to bring, I think Kelly, I think you're the one who said is to help us get off our affirmations, right. And really lean into these issues as spiritually grounded activists. And in fact, you're going to be talking about that at the Women of Wisdom conference, talking about spiritual activism. Yep. Yeah, I am. uh, You know, and when in my mind, as you were talking about, you know, the plastics, I I don't, you know, it's like, whenever I see, you know, plastic things and, you know, I look at, I look at, all I have to do is look in front of me at my desk and I see things that are plastic and it's, I, and, um, uh, and and it's just the just plastic alone is so hard to avoid. And what comes to what also comes to mind is, you know, where this all goes in landfills and this idea that we have that we throw it away. Like, where the hell is away? Yeah. As I, as I, as I take a swig from my plastic. Right. We're all, right. We're all doing it. My favorite. But hey, it's refillable. I know. <laughs> and my, my plastic pen. And yeah. I'm, but it's, a, but where's where is away? Right. There right. isn't so, in a way. There is and, and then think about like uh, landfills and dumps and everything where those all wind up is where, you know, the people that are most marginalized, that are the most resource poor, where they live. So let me add a, a, some some despair and some hope. <laughs> Here's a statistic everyone should pay attention to, I believe. Um, I'm going to give you two statistics everyone should be dismally aware of. Um, of all the plastic ever created on the planet, less than 9% of it has ever been recycled. Ugh. And all of it is still in the environment, except for the tiny percentage that has been incinerated. All of it. It doesn't actually go away. This is what we talk about with microplastics. I believe that there should have been, there was a huge BS campaign from the petrochemical corporate uh, uh, industry to put the little recycled arrows on everything, but really only a few of those can actually be recycled. Right. So, and, and, and they make it, they make it seem like it's our fault and our responsibility yeah. right. uh, when it's, you know, the corporations who, yes. are, the, who are the giant polluters, uh, you know, if, if I, if yes. I could literally recycle everything that was recyclable that I use, it would like, if we did as people, it wouldn't make a dent. No, that's exactly right. So, you know, what I say is do the best you can. Don't go plastic. There are lots of little steps we can take. I bring my own, I eat to go a lot. That's one of my probably least eco-friendly things. I bring my own utensils, whatever. There are those kinds of steps. I would also like to point out that don't buy, don't buy, not buying things is, is activism. Yes. Yes. Buying, (laughs) buying secondhand consignment is activism. Repairing the stuff that we have is activism. I mean, even even though sometimes it's cheaper just to throw it out away and get new, those are forms of activism. I think another critical question is, how much is enough? How much is enough? Even me, as I live in a 960 square foot house and I am very intentional with this stuff and I have way more stuff than I really, quote, need. 
right? So how much is enough? Um, that's something that we're all that we're all going to have to grapple with because in the in the wealthier nations, we're taking too much. Right. We're just taking too much. Well, we think that uh, again that zero sum game thing that um, that my good is going to take away from your good, or if you have something, that means I'm going to go without. Meanwhile, there's more than enough of what we need for everybody already. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you another stunning statistic and um, then I will shift to the more hopeful stuff. Um, (laughs) I can't believe that this is not like international alarm bells. When you take all of the human beings and all of our food animals, cattle, pigs, etc., we now make up about 95% of the mammal weight on the planet. Wow. Wait, say that, say that again. When you take the human beings and our meat animals, cattle, pig, even in some parts of the world, llamas, well, chickens are different. I'm going to come to poultry in a second. We're now about by biomass, which is the weight of all those critters. We're now about 95% of the mammal life on earth. I know that that is really hard to get one's head around. So basically, basically us humans and the animals, we're literally like raising for food. Yes. Which is why. Yeah. Wow. We're never, we're never, we're never going to reverse the desecration of nature or get ahead of climate change. If we don't deal with the industrialized meat industry. And I'm not 100% vegan. I'll put that right out there. But I'm pretty far on the on the on the spectrum. Even though I like the taste of the stuff, it's not that. It's the it's the impact and also just the misery. I'm an old farm kid. I've seen I've right. seen too much. Um, and then chickens, turkeys, all of that. They out they outnumber wild birds on our planet now. We've done this. We this is why they call this era we're living in. We're now the Anthropocene. The, right. the human yes. species has become a geological force. Right. And that means unless we're gonna have, you know, somehow a virus that takes out half of us, which could happen, you know, COVID, COVID is part of this oppression of nature. COVID yes. jumps to humans from a horrific meat market which is no which is no worse than our industrialized factory farms here in the US but it's horrific it's you know it's animals stacked upon animals stacked upon animals stacked upon animals i really believe that our supraorganism our collective consciousness how, however people think of it it is sending humans signal after signal after signal right now right change course because we're not going to wipe out the planet sadly we're going to wipe out a lot of the beautiful places and a lot of the amazing species we're already doing it we're not going to wipe it out completely but we're also not going to be able to survive on a completely decimated right planet okay i think we we need some good news now right yes we need some good news now (laughs) What do you you got for us? Where's, where's the hope? Oh, again, we need some good news now. I think the hope is, um, again, I think I encourage everyone to watch the year the earth changed because what that shows is it shows that when we humans do take the collective foot off her back, she can heal really, really quickly. And a lot of it could be done. Like we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't have to wipe out the entire cargo shipping industry. We would just have to cut it down overall. And there are certain times like during calving, uh, certain whale calving seasons when it shouldn't be allowed to go in certain areas. A lot of this doesn't have to be about totally giving up. Right. It doesn't have to be all hard. It doesn't have to be all hard. It just has to be about really sort of putting your putting the considerations of a thriving natural world into your policy mix. You know, I was lucky enough. um, I've been lucky enough to do some work in Bhutan 
little tiny Himalayan country. At that time, it was the youngest democracy because their benevolent king had said, we ought to be a democracy (laughs) and made it so that doesn't happen very often. Right. That had happened. And he was also the one who Bhutan was one was the first to shift away from the gross domestic product productivity. The the king said, I am more concerned about my people being happy. And they developed the gross national happiness index. And, and people, you know, I was, again, I was serving as first lady when the governor and I got to go to Bhutan to do some of this work. And we just got lambasted in the, in the Oregon media. It's like, oh, Fluffy goes off to study happiness. And, but what they don't realize, first of all, happiness was written into our founding documents, right? Just saying. But beyond that, this is a very robust metric of like 26 different categories that they use to, to guide their budget and policy decisions. Right. So very quickly to put a bow on this one, they were the the tourism industry in Bhutan which has which is not a panacea or perfect. It has its own racial issues, its own, you know, poverty issues for sure. But they were one of the things that was really starting to pop with their little economy was tourism because it was open to the world for the first time. And and there was a contingent that wanted to start doing helicopter tourism. And they ran the pros and cons of that through the um, National Happiness Index and decided against it. Because the downside of the money that would have to be spent to build the infrastructure, the noise, the carbon was not worth what they were going to was not worth the positives in their opinion. Those are the kinds of things we need to be looking at, we need to stop externalizing and not counting the harm that's done from certain policy and behavior decisions. Yeah. Well, it's a, um, yeah, yeah, it's that pause, um, pausing and just, you know, is this rather than mindlessly making decisions, like being willing to, to pause and is this for the well-being of all, you know, that, I mean, that's what justice is, is about well-being. So, you know, social justice is communal well-being. So, um, I don't know, getting leaders, you know, entrepreneurs, business owners, teachers, you know, whomever to even just ask the question, you know, a little breath of, is this for the well-being of all life? Yeah, I do. I know that it. this is a, as I said at the outset, this is a difficult subject to talk about because it is so big and it's so... yes. So much of it's in the wrong direction. Yeah. However, I keep talking about it because I want more and more people to be asking the hard questions. I want more and more people to be pushing back when it's just the assumption that we need increased economic growth. We need to, we need to be asking growth of what and for what, right? I mean, I want, I just, I, I think um, <laughs> my, my niche here is to is to hopefully not be too doom and gloom, but I'm definitely one who puts it out there. But really, I'm hoping to inspire and encourage people to start asking the right questions and putting the right lenses on things and also being gentle with ourselves in the process because we're all caught in. And, un, you know, I don't think anyone at anywhere, in, certainly in the Western part of the world, can completely avoid plastic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just... So, um, but we ought, but we ought not be allowing the manufacture and use of the types of plastic that can't actually be recycled. We yeah. just shouldn't be yeah. doing yeah. it. Yeah. We talk about, we talk about getting rid of single use plastics. Yeah. Um, and then I was, I was in some podcast the other day that talked about zero use plastic. And I was like, what does that even mean? And it talks about things like, you know, like when we maybe order food from a, from a restaurant and they send plastic silverware you know, which we, many of us just throw in the trash because it's near impossible to eat with those things anyways, right? So we order the food, bring it home, we use our regular knives and forks and we th- we don't even use them once, right? So zero use plastic. And, yeah. and, that's, and that's, that's invited me to be a lot more uh, mindful as well. And I think y- you hit the nail on the head earlier when you were talking about questions, 
um, it begins with questions for ourselves around the how much do we need? How much do we have to have? And what scares us the most about not having, right? So a lot of this is around our internal consciousness, the whole philosophy of saving for a rainy day, the whole philosophy around bigger is better, more is better, um, you know, and, um, and I think until we begin to, to shift those, um, those things internally within ourselves, there isn't much hope elsewhere. Uh, And, and, and what I mean by that, it can be a both end, right? We can still be answering those questions poorly for ourselves and still be engaged in in work towards protecting and saving the environment. Yeah. But unless yeah. we change it for ourselves, ultimately we're we're not we're, we're negating the we're negating the outer work because we're still contributing to the problem. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, and part of it's just training. Like I like I said, I, I order to go food quite a bit. I've narrowed down the places that are still in completely non-recyclable or excessively packaged stuff. And I tell them, I actually Mm -hmm. like your cafe, but I'm not going to order here until you guys shift to better. And here's a resource. Here's where you can find better packaging options. And I've trained myself when I call them in um, to, to specify no utensils, no utensils. That's a little thing. Um, you know, I got a few weeks ago, I got, um, I ordered some dinner for delivery <clears throat> and um, it, the bag that it came in, instead of, you know, one thing that is nice, well, I don't know that's nice or not, but the, I have seen fewer plastic bags coming with deliveries mm-hmm. um, and, and brown paper bags, which have their own issues. And uh, twice I've gotten in the past several months, the, the, the brown paper bag was actually made from sugar. Mm-hmm. you know or mm-hmm. or like the unused sugar cane like whatever the, the excess fiber. is yeah, fiber yes thank you, you um know, oh, go ahead i just thought that was i'm like oh i haven't gotten one of these before i thought that was no i don't know enough about it but yeah. i thought well those industries are really really burgeoning you know i um uh there's a whole um new movement now using uh ocean plastic plastic pulled out of the ocean, recycled into stuff. I actually just got some CBD salve. I had a big knee surgery recently and I got this and um, it was cool because on the, on the bottom part of the container, it's plastic, right? On the bottom part of the container though, it's a hundred percent recycled plastic. And the top part of the container was made from ocean plastic. And these are companies that are, that are marketing this. There's a, there's an organization called a plastic bank check them out. They're international and they have figured out a way for people in very poor regions of the world who are very affected by ocean plastic to, to collect and recycle and make money. It's a, it's a kind of a banking system on recycling plastic. There are so many of these things that are starting. And what's the name of it called? Yet? It's called Plastic Bank. If you Google it, it will Plastic come Bank. Okay. Yep. Plastic See, Bank. I, I just think people don't know. I agree with you. And in not, fact, I mean, that's not the only thing, but there's so many resources. We just don't there know. Are. There are. So actually to that point, um, uh, before we do run out of time, I do want to direct people to my little organization. When COVID struck, I don't want to sound very heartless when I say this, but when COVID struck, I was not freaked out. I was actually kind of elated and I couldn't have known that millions of people were going to die. And I don't want to sound that heartless, but I have known for a long time, we need a timeout in this particular level of consumption and we needed a timeout. And so when that happened, I quickly stood up a nonprofit organization. It's called The Rethink. You can go to therethink.org and um, we're populating it over time with resources like this and also some of the right questions. It focuses on the areas of economic evolution, rethinking stuff. And rethinking our relationship with the natural world, especially with commodified animals. So that's kind of the areas where we're targeting. And again, for anyone who wants to listen in, Kelly and I are going to be talking more about this stuff with some other pretty cool women at the Women of Wisdom Conference. Which we'll put a we'll put a a link in uh, to that. And I want to add one more thing, because I think um, we've emphasized a couple of times why I call it economics. I think it's important to note that the root of the the root word eco, ecology, 
economics, that word means home. Right. Home. It is our home. We forget that it's our home. And actually we're, you know, we are in a, in, I agree that we are in this place of an apocalypse. We are in this place of, there's a whole lot of dying that has to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, systems need to die. Structures need to be broken down and, you know, ways of being uh, and, and, and. Um, And so it is, you know, the, the apocalypse, um, which frightens people. Uh, and I, I would say, well, in part, it should, yeah. um, you know, that doesn't, it's, it's messy that you, you can't get out of this. And, and, you know, if we're going to, you know, turn things, if we're, if we don't want to completely obliterate where we live, we have to, um, you know, there has to be change on multiple levels, individually, in families, towns, communities, you know, politically, you know, at, at every level of our existence. And at our thinking. And I'll tell you, yeah. as someone who's been in politics for a long time, um, uh, I don't believe our governmental institutions are going to fix this for us. Not in time. I think it really has to come at the level of the social movements, Right. The, faith, the faith and environment movement um, yes. is increasingly important yep. and individual people just saying sort of decolonizing our own yes. mind, right? Yep. Yep. Not buying into the BS of the amount of stuff one has to have to be successful, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and that's hard because we're awash in it, right. but we have got to do that work of saying, uh-uh. I'm checking out of that craziness as best I can. And yeah, I'm going to buy this thing today because I need it and I know it. And I'm not going to do this over here because I don't have to. And I don't need it to feel like I'm enough. We're, we're hospicing modernity. That's what we're doing. Oh, everyone everyone likes to think we're in a postmodern world, but we're actually hospicing modernity. I love that. I'm writing that down. Yeah. I was going to say that, 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 that last thing you said was so important. How do we define our own sense of worth and worthiness? Can we right. and 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 comfort? What's enough to be comfortable um, as as well? So those those are the deep personal questions we got to ask. So uh, as we wrap up, Sylvia, um, is there a place online people can learn more about you and what you do? You want to share that with us real quickly? For sure. Yeah, I have two websites I'd love to point you to. The first is therethink.org. Yeah, we put it in the Facebook links in the comments. Great. And then just sylviahayes.net. All right. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, thank, you. thank you for getting our knowledge on the sacred economics, um, economics. And that's all we got time for today. We're going to see you right back here next week on with love and justice for all.